Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Conservative Party of Canada will choose their new leader this weekend. Who's in the lead and what type of leader do they need? We'll get into that discussion. Many school boards are now trying to make masks mandatory for all students. How hard is that going to be to implement and what's the effect going to be? And Joe Biden officially accepted the nomination for President of the United States at the Democratic Convention last night. What about the speech? How inspiring was it? Well, we'll get all the details on that as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's face the political scene coming up on this side of the border. It's been a rocky road, of course, for the, the Trudeau government lately because of some of the things that have gone on, the, the we situation, which is yet to be resolved. And uh, More importantly, though, the possibility that with the throne speech coming up in about a month now when they reconvene Parliament after the prorogation, uh, there's a possibility of, of course, a non-confidence motion. And if the government fails that motion, they uh, will fall, and there could be an election just around the same time that we could be uh, looking at the U.S. election. But the Conservatives will choose a new leader today, or this weekend, rather. Today's the final day for voting, and then they'll go through some of the counts that are already happening, and uh, we'll get the announcement on Sunday about that. But it's a, it's a four-person race, or is it? There's a lot of handicapping that's going on these days. Stephanie Levitt sets the scene for us. Leslin Lewis, Peter McKay, Aaron O'Toole, and Derek Sloan are all in the running for the top job, left open when current leader Andrew Scheer announced his intention to resign in December. The leadership race launched in the wake of that saw several more people try to make the cut, but the entry requirements were too high a barrier for them to overcome. The COVID-19 pandemic has also changed the race, with candidates forced to abandon in-person meet-and-greets for months and pivot to entirely virtual campaigns. Well, and therein lies the problem as to what are the priorities going to be and, and where do these candidates stand? There are four people, of course, that are seeking the uh, Conservative uh, Party leadership, those uh, being, of course, Peter McKay, uh, Derek Sloan, Leslie Lewis, and uh, Aaron O'Toole. Joining us to talk about this is Peter Wolzencroft, who is a retired professor of political science at the University of Waterloo. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Uh, thank you very much. Good morning to you. Good to have you with us. Uh, four names on the ballot, but a lot of people are considering this to be a two-person race. What's your assessment on this? Well, I think at the outset it was a two-person race with Peter McKay in the lead, but uh, I don't think he's run a stellar campaign, and Aaron O'Toole has shown strength. But the real kicker in the whole play is Leslin Lewis, who's a uh, person of color from Toronto, uh, three university degrees, practicing lawyer, and uh, on the social conservative side, who has presented herself very well. And uh, I think she could get 20 or percent of the vote, maybe more than that. And that uh, could very well determine who's the winner. And I always look at it in sort of historical geographical terms. It is, is extraordinary that a conservative party has no candidate from Western Canada. Uh, there is no candidate from Quebec. Uh, we have three candidates from Ontario, and Peter McKay is half Ontario, half Nova Scotia. Uh, so in a sense, the party's leadership base is very narrow. Uh, so I ask you a question. When was the last time the Conservative Party had a leader from Ontario? Well, I'll help you out. 1957, <laughs> George Drew. You have to go back a long time. When was the last time the Conservative Party had a prime minister from Ontario? Well, you have to go back to the 20s and Arthur Meehan. Uh, so the party, Conservative Party, has been a party of outside of Ontario, though it has a big base in rural, small town Ontario. So uh, it is it is peculiar to me that the party has not produced viable candidates from uh, well at least one of its strongholds, uh, uh, that would be Western Canada, 
and that there's nobody emerged from uh, francophone Canada. To that point, though, that's it's interesting that when you look at it this way, Peter, because one of the criticisms I've heard uh, over the last number of years of the party, I mean, you know, they were in power for a substantial amount of time, of course, under Stephen Harper, but nonetheless, uh, they felt that the party was perhaps becoming too Western-centric, uh, with Mr. Harper and a number of his key players, of course, being from there. And we saw that with the last leadership race as well, with Andrew Scheer eventually winning that situation. But on the other hand, if, if in fact there is a feeling that, that maybe they have to move eastward uh there's a lot of animosity at west uh, as i've seen anyway about anybody from toronto they, they just don't think toronto is the center of the universe like people in well, toronto seem you know, to i'm uh, as you said retired and i'm uh, 76 but i grew up in alberta so yes i have that anti-toronto sentiment though i'd sure <laughs> now but uh, it's i i think it's good that ontario has produced leadership candidates and that it's puzzled me that it's been unable to produce somebody who would win win the mantle of leadership. But it's also peculiar to me that there's nobody from Western Canada. And you've got three provincial governments which are conservative, so there's nobody there who is looking towards the national scene. Uh, Atlantic Canada produces Peter McKay, so he's half Atlantic Canada, but he's basically Toronto nowadays. Yeah. Um, so for a national party to be unable to produce a, a raft of candidates drawn uh, across uh, the width and depth of this country, I think, is unfortunate. Uh, so, if somebody's going to win, obviously, I think it will take two or three ballots. And uh, and the first question that's going to, and if if, uh, if Peter McKay wins or Leslie Lewis wins, the first question will be, will you run in one of the by-elections in Toronto? There's two by-elections that will be could be called this fall: Toronto Centre, which is a sinkhole for Conservatives. There's also York Centre, which is generally a liberal stronghold. So the new leader, if it's not Aaron O'Toole, will be confronted with this question of will you run in, in not a very hospitable place? A difficult question. And the second question will be, will you defeat the government uh, on the speech from the throne sometime in October? And so immediately two pressing questions uh, for the new leader. Um, and the party will have to look at itself because... As I talk to conservatives, uh, I'm astonished at how many did not renew their membership and how many didn't feel motivated. So I'm not too sure how strong the party is in terms of its membership base. Well, we'll see how many people actually voted uh, when we get the results on Sunday night. Peter, three of the four that, that, that we're talking about here, uh, Derek Sloan, uh, Leslie Lewis, and, and for that matter, Aaron O'Toole, uh, are labeled as social conservatives. Uh, how important is that for the conservative base to, to have somebody to take to stand on some of those issues? Well, I think I think within the party it's important, uh, and uh, and yes, in many parts of the country, social conservatives within the conservative party are important. However, as I say to my social conservative friends, and of course they want to punch me in the throat when I tell them this, <laughs> is that the country doesn't care about these issues, and and most Canadians. Um, find social conservative positions anathema. Uh, they're they're not Americans. Social conservatism has a big, big, big appeal in the United States, but it has a very limited appeal in Canada. It'd be very difficult for the uh, a conservative party that was on a social conservative platform to win office, and it would and it would be particularly difficult in urban Canada, where I hate to remind people, most people in Canada live. And, and that's why if you look at the 
50 urban ridings in this country, 60, actually 60 urban ridings in this country, electoral districts, they're all held by non-conservatives. That's a very bad sign for the party. It has to do well in urban and suburban areas. And I remain unconvinced that the social conservative appeal really has much traction. Yet there they are, and, and you're right. I mean, within that that subset of, of conservatives and, and right wing conservatives, uh, that may score some points. But uh, your point about the last election, I think, is well taken here. Uh, you know, everybody thought Andrew Scheer was probably going to beat Justin Trudeau in that last election, but they could not seem to get any seats in the big cities, uh, save for a couple of cities out west, of course, where they yeah. still have that stronghold. Well, there's an old saying in American politics, you go hunting where the ducks are, and uh, there aren't many cons- social conservative ducks in urban Canada. I, so I was that... out in, in small-town rural Ontario a couple of days this week, and I could feel the social conservatism. I could feel the old Canada. And I said to myself, well, this is very interesting. This is not even Kitchener-Waterloo where I am, and it's certainly not Toronto. And it reminded me of uh, old Canada, Um, just the way people went about their business, what I heard, you know, on the beach and the restaurants and so on. And it's not the kind of things that people in Toronto and Hamilton and elsewhere would be talking about. So does that make uh, Peter McKay the, uh, the the front runner in a situation like that? He's labeled as a red Tory, at least he was when he was the leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, mind you, he still seems to embrace some of the uh, the conservative values. I know, for instance, he's still speaking against the carbon tax. Uh, is 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 a is a Peter McKay a, as a party leader actually going to start talking about reversing that tax and and doing some of the other things that, that social conservatives well, would love to know, see happen? I, I don't know if, uh, how comfortable he would be on the social conservative side. In fact, that's the, if he loses, that's why he lost. Is because Leslin Lewis, and to a lesser extent, Derek Sloan, uh, have social conservatives on their side. Mm-hmm. And if, as they are eliminated from the, the count, their second and third choices were much more likely to go to Aaron O'Toole than to Peter McKay. So um, I can't answer your question directly because I'm hard I'm hard pressed to figure out exactly what Peter McKay would do. But I will say, if he doesn't win on the first ballot, it's going to be harder and harder for him to win on the second or third ballot. We should remind our listeners, by the way, and I'm glad you brought that up, Peter, the voting system, the technique that they're using, uh, is going to be, well, the same thing they used in the last leadership vote. Uh, so second and third choices will matter. I mean, how many, what was it, 17 ballots before Andrew Scheer finally beat Maxine yeah. Bernier the last time? Yeah, and, and you don't have the crowd playing on you because uh, people vote in their family room or wherever, and they mark their ballots, one, two, three, four, and send it off. And the other thing that must be remembered is that they have an electoral college system, uh, just like in the United States for... Uh, for president. So if you have a writing in Quebec with 100 members, that's just as important as a writing in Alberta with 100,000 members, because each writing has 100 points to be distributed according to the vote. So small writings in terms of uh, membership and areas where the party are weak or is weak are just as important in terms of the leadership race as writings which represent the, the electoral strength of the party. So, so we have, I mean, we sh- I, have to sh- I, I, sharpen I, I, your math skills, I guess, is what you're saying, right? Yeah, and, 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 and here's the point. I mean, I have a big debate with people. Some people want a one-person, one-vote system, and I said, well, that would be good for large urban areas, and that may be good for the party, but it would be very bad for the country because people would not pay any attention to Moose Jaw, Mooseman, or uh, any other small-town area like, uh, uh, like Bayfield 
or Goderich or whatever. You would never get people out there because there are no votes. You go hunting where the ducks are, as we say. It's uh, it's going to be fascinating, and especially, as you mentioned, Peter, given the political landscape that we're in right now. I mean, there's going to be a, a no-throne speech. There's going to be a budget. There's going to be probably a non-confidence motion. And, and you're right. I think question one for whoever is going to win this thing on Sunday is, uh, are you going to bring down the government? I mean, let's, those votes are there. I don't know what... The first question. The second question, if you're not Peter McKay, will you, or if you're not Aaron O'Toole, will you run in one of the by-elections? Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Uh, and, and probably, and as you say, Toronto Centre, which has been a liberal stronghold, that's Bill Morneau's seat now, of course, and, yeah. well, since he resigned. Uh, and, but there, there, and, uh, and, there, and lots of uh, liberal grandees have held that seat over the decades. It's been the centerpiece of the Liberal Party. So it, it's not a place where Conservatives are likely to win. They haven't won it since the, uh, 1958. Which goes back to the old idea, too, of, of, okay, where do you find a seat then? Does somebody step aside? I mean, because there aren't too many by-elections coming up. Uh, well, and- yeah, I mean, usually what happens, you, you, you get some conservative who steps aside. Uh, Peter McKay would probably be happier with the seat that's in Atlantic Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, but he lives in Toronto, so that's an interesting, you know, where, where do you want your seat to be? Well, close to where you live. So he's got to make some big decisions. Then you have to persuade some conservative MP to, to stand down. And, you know, you don't go into politics without ambition. <laughs> so for you to be told, well, you should step aside, and if we win office, you may get a sentence or something. Um, it, it's hard to take. It's hard to, I, I would hate to persuade somebody that you should step down so the new leader can win the by-election. I know. Well, interesting not, machinations. Not, that are... not, a fun, not a fun assignment. No, that's, a, that's one phone call you don't want to get. Uh, no. <laughs> congratulations, yeah. Mr. So-and-so. You're the new leader. By the way, could you step aside because I want your seat? Yeah, uh, that's, but that's politics. <laughs> Peter, always well, great to get your... So, yes. And if you don't <laughs> so have a seat, to... then you, know, you, you do disappear. Uh, you have to be there, and you have to work with the caucus, and you have to work with the media, and you have to be on call all the time, and, and you, have to, you have to confront the prime minister and say, listen, this is your path, but I have a better path, and here it is. We'll see what happens on Sunday. Always a pleasure to get your perspective, Peter. Thanks so much for the time today. You're welcome, and thank you. Bye. Take care. Peter Rosencroft, of course, retired uh, poli-sci professor at the University of Waterloo. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Still a lot of controversy and conversation about uh, the provincial government's uh, outline for the back-to-school uh, program. Uh, we just heard there's been an extension on how long parents can actually go before they actually may have to de- you know, determine where hey, we're going to send the kids, we're going to keep them home, whatever the case might be. And a lot of legitimate concerns raised about the program. And, and I know that this has become a political football now, uh, with some people, including the Premier, suggesting that, well, the teachers are just playing politics here. But uh, when we're th- talking about health and safety in a public issue like this, obviously those concerns need to be addressed. And there are some people who don't think that the provincial government's program goes far enough well some of the boards are being proactive about that uh next week the uh, thames valley district school board in london is going to be entertaining an idea about making masks mandatory for all students i mean from kindergarten right on through uh the hamilton catholic board of education made that decision yesterday as a matter of fact unanimously uh passed a a mandate that uh, says all students from uh, grade from kindergarten all the way up to grade 12 now must wear masks in the classroom uh, they also voted uh, in favor of a motion that's uh, going to have uh, a staggering beginning to this. And other boards are starting to be creative about that as well. But I want to focus in on the masking issue of this right now because I think, uh, you know, going back as we've seen the evolution of how we're trying to fight COVID and how we're trying to, you know, keep this under control, 
uh, we've gone uh, full circle when it comes to masks or no masks as to how we're going to do this and, and who should be wearing these. And uh, I want to get a read on what's happening here and, and as to whether or not we're heading down the right path. I, I agree both boards what they're going to do here. We'll see what the London board does, the Thames Valley board does next week with their motion. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid, Khalid rather, who is a medical doctor and uh, health expert and always a welcome guest on the program. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you so much. You, as you've told us before, I mean, we're learning more about the virus each and every day. Uh, and, and with that, of course, with that new knowledge, uh, and uh, there are some things that we thought back in March that we figured, no, that wasn't right, we're doing this. And masks, I think, fall right into that category. You know, the initial reaction, as you and I have talked about many times, was uh, probably don't need masks. Now they seem to be an essential tool in helping to, to, to keep this virus under control. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's correct. So I think that you know, masks will always be, face masks, to be clear, will always be one of those things that we will look back at with COVID-19 and say, here's an example where the evidence kept changing around whether we should have face masks or not, how protective they are and how effective they are. But right now, the evidence is clear on the effectiveness of face masks. We know that face masks do help to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And so mandating it for school children uh, is a no-brainer. The evidence is crystal clear that they work, they're effective. The issue becomes here is around implementation. Can our children really keep the face mask on and are they able to put it on appropriately and take it off and dispose it in the appropriate manner? Is, is that a red herring, though, that, well, kids can't wear masks all day, they can't really do this, so they, they, they get all fidgety? I, I, I understand that there may be people like that, probably adults that are like that, too. But the families I've talked to over the last couple of months, especially since this has become a, a debatable issue now, Doctor, uh, they get it, and their kids get it, too. And, I mean, I, I can even see in, in our neighborhood, you know, the young kids, and these guys are well, look like kindergarten or pre-kindergarten kids in many cases, and, and they're quite comfortable wearing a mask. Yeah, so that's exactly it. I speak to a lot of parents, too, and they say that their children have no problems wearing the mask. I think that I'm only presenting to you what the counter-argument from some people who are arguing sure. that face masks shouldn't be mandated. They're claiming that, you know, children have a hard time wearing it. And sure, there are some children who will be difficult, especially if they have learning disabilities or developmental delays. They have a little bit of a harder time wearing that. But that doesn't mean that we can't figure out other ways that we can uh, reduce the spread of the infection. And by that, I mean is that can we look at personal protective gear, for example, put the kids in bubbles within classrooms? So it's not a one strategy to help get ahead of COVID-19 in classroom settings. It's more of a multitude of strategies. So sanitization, hand, wa hand washing, making sure that children encourage them to wear face masks at all times, uh, reporting and contact tracing. All those different strategies that we've outlined in the past are so important now as we look to reopen the schools. Well, and I, I don't want to drag you into the weeds in the political end of this, but, I mean, one of the criticisms that uh, the Ford government has received about their plan uh, was the lack of social distancing oftentimes in these classrooms. And, and from a physical standpoint, some boards just aren't going to be able to do that. Uh, you know, they don't have ready cash on hand to say, okay, we're going to do all the stuff that, for instance, restaurants have to do by putting up glass barriers and things of that, plexiglass barriers and things of this nature. But masking, I think, addresses that concern, doesn't it? Absolutely. And currently, the 24 school boards in, in Ontario specifically have designated schools to create groups of 15 students. So what they're trying to do is get creative around the class size. So can I go within a big class size and, and make bubbles within that class size? So that's one way to move forward. I think, I think, listen, at the end of the day, every province is just trying to do the best they can. I will give everybody the benefit of the doubt here. I think 
we're all trying to figure out how that looks like. And we're looking at other countries that have, have done similar measures to see what we can learn from. We see Taiwan and Singapore, where the entire country has mandated face masks in all school settings. In Canada, it's different. You know, we know Quebec, for example, the province of Quebec has not mandated them in school settings. While in Ontario, we are, in Nova Scotia, to a certain extent, we are. So the point I'm trying to make here is that not only is every school board maybe deciding different ways of going around this, but also province-wide and countrywide, we're not unanimous. Not all provinces are doing the same thing. I, the debates seem to, in some ways, and, and some jurisdictions, center around the fact that, well, kids don't seem to be as susceptible to the virus as, as adults do. Uh, and, and we're starting to hear evidence to the contrary. I mean, in other jurisdictions uh, where this has happened, and, you know, certainly in the southern United States and over in some European countries, I, what do they have about eight schools in Berlin closed down yesterday because of the spread, and that's after only two weeks of being open. Uh, that we know that they, they may not manifest itself and it may not in, infect them to the same degree it would an adult, but they can still spread this. And that seems to be the concern right now, which I think underscores the need for masks even that much more. Yeah, absolutely. So the study on the children, the reason why there's been a bit of conflicting evidence around this is because uh, COVID-19 is an evolving pandemic and we're learning more and more as the case numbers increase uh, about how it manifests in children. So it, overall, the research tells us that children are super spreaders, right? Talk to any parent that tell you my child is a germ. Uh, and so, like, they, they spread viruses faster. They're super spreaders. When it came to COVID-19, some of the studies we've seen um, so far are indicating that the virus uh, attaches to a certain receptors in adults better than in children. And this is probably why we're seeing it more in adults than we are in children. However... Uh, we've been studying this with school closures in effect. So let's wait and see when schools open up, when our kids are back out in the community, how will this play out? It will look differently because there are higher rate of exposure once schools open up again. Yeah, and the statistics here, I guess, can really give a false impression sometimes, can't they, Doctor? I mean, you know, for, for as we were looking at these cases and while we were starting to spike in so many areas, uh, the kids were already out of school. Uh, so yeah. to suggest that statistically they don't seem to get it as often as adults, well, that's because we've already started the social isolation with kids uh, from all the way back to mid-March until now. Uh, the key is going to be, and I guess the real indicator is going to be what happens in September now. Exactly. And if you speak to any parent during COVID-19 at the, at the beginning of the outbreaks, I mean, parents really jumped right away and was like, we need to protect our kids. And so very rarely did you see children really out. Parents were very conscious. If they went grocery shopping to get household needs, they kept their children at home. They really tried to isolate them further than the adults. Like you and I would still make the, you know, the odd trip to the supermarket. Children really were, you know, away from that. That's about to change. When we open schools again, it's a whole different ball game, And I think we're going to see different numbers. That's just the nature of this virus. The boards seem to get it. Uh, we were just talking about the Thames Valley Board in London, and, of course, the, the Catholic Board here in Hamilton uh, making these mandatory. And, and they, they seem to be having a more wholesome discussion about exactly the impact that this could have. Uh, you know, we've talked to people, like school bus drivers, for instance, that have re- expressed some real concerns about this. You know, they, am, you know, am I exposing myself as a school bus driver if I'm going to have 25 or 30 kids on my bus every day who may be positive and may be spreaders in situations like that? So that, there's a lot of ground to cover here to try to make sure that our kids are going to be safe yeah yes i agree with you and i think i think we need to get into this conversation with a very important caveat which is that there is no sort of risk-free situation right like there's no way we can design something that will ensure there is zero chance of anybody getting COVID 19 whether it's the staff teachers the children or the parents 
we are living in a reality that the risk of getting COVID-19 is quite high. We know that. What we're all trying to do, everybody involved, from parents to staff to policymakers, is figure out a best-case scenario under worst case, which is the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, we know we need to open up the schools again because we need our children back in there for social development skills, for just overall wellness of our children. So it's a matter of what can we put in place that will minimize that risk. So I think the reason why I'm saying this is so important to make it clear at the beginning, because it changes our arguments, you know, you know whether you mandate face masks or not, what strategies you put in place, all those, all they're trying to do is minimize the risk, but not eliminate it. Which we do for our kids all the time anyway, don't we? Exactly. I mean, I, 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 I rarely see people riding around on bicycles these days that don't have helmets. Some choose not to, though, nonetheless. But even if the adult is not doing it, invariably, if I see kids along with them, they make sure the kids have a helmet on. In other words, we want to maximize the protection for our kids in any way we can, and which is why I guess this debate about masks really has to be happening right now, uh, because it is all about the kids. And we do know now that uh, the kids can be super spreaders of this. And we're probably going to see this, I guess, come September, October, aren't we, Doctor? This gets back again to the discussion we've had about, you know, is there going to be a second wave, a second spike? Uh, if we don't do this and we don't follow these guidelines as, as we're being recommended to do, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be victims of our own, you know, in, incompetence, I guess, when it comes to something like this. We don't want to be the one that spreads it, but uh, there's an inevitability here that this isn't going to go away anytime soon. Exactly. And, and we look at other countries in the world where they've opened schools already and some have had outbreaks and, had, and the economy had to shut down again. I bring up the example of Israel. They've opened their schools again, and there was a massive spike in the numbers of community cases, which led to the economy shutting down again and lockdown. So we don't want that case. We really want strict measures in place, the best guidelines we have, follow them as much as possible. But we all children, all parents, sorry, take the risk on a daily basis. I love the example you brought up about the helmets and bikes. You speak to any parent when you put a child on a bike, you know that there's a risk with the child being on the bike, and you try to protect them by being around, putting a helmet on, ensuring that there's no cars around. Those are measures that all parents put in place to protect the child the best way possible. And I think that's what school boards are doing and parents are doing. And I will say this, that we need to, you know, give parents a little bit more space here. Because if a parent decides not comfortable to bring their child back to school, we need to be okay with that. And we need to support them somehow. And by that, I mean, we need to, to think now and put in place creative teaching strategies that we can educate our children at home if the parent feels that they're this is not the right time for them to go back to school. Yeah, you don't want to alienate people or families in situations like that. And and, and I know that because uh, we've had that discussion on our program too, Doctor, and the concern here is that, well, is, are they just making a political statement? I don't think that's the, the case at all. Uh, it's Again, it's about the children's safety. And as, as Dr. Williams told us, the medical officer of health here for the province of Ontario uh, a week or so ago when he was talking about these guidelines, the provincial guidelines, he says there's, there's no perfect system here. And if you mm. don't feel comfortable with your child going back to school, then don't do that. I mean, I think we've created a situation now, haven't we, Doctor, that, that there are on-ramps and off-ramps here. I mean, we may decide as parents that I don't want them going back in September, but, you know, they, it could be different in October. And, and so, you know, there's always going to be some flexibility, I would think, with boards. Exactly, and I think that's the situation. So even if you do decide to bring your child back to school come September, that doesn't mean that there won't be another lockdown. You know, there's one case of COVID-19 suspected or diagnosed in, in a school setting we're probably going to have to shut down the school, uh, you know, for quite some time until, and open it again. So uh, the off-ramp, on-ramp thing is a perfect analogy to this. 
There is not going to be, it's not just we're going to open schools permanently. I think it's test and trial. Exactly how we did with the stages of opening in Ontario, where we went phase by phase. I think we're looking at the same kind of strategy with school. Well, and I haven't talked to any parents yet that are just saying, hey, this is no big deal. I'm going to send the kids back. What are you guys all getting worried about? I mean, there's a real serious concern that's going on here. And I and I agree. I mean, if we do see uh, new cases, especially in school settings, uh, most of the parents I've talked to have said that the day we hear that, we're pulling them out. You know, we're not just going to hang around and, and see how bad it's going to be. They want to make sure that the kids are going to be safe. And I think the boards understand that, too. Absolutely. And I think I look at my own family and I see that I have two sisters with children. One has decided to send her kids back. The other one decided not. Um, and so I mean, even within my own family dynamic, we're having discussions around the dinner table every day. And I'm sure parents across the country are doing the exact same thing. It's not an easy decision. You know, parents, it's also difficult on the parents to keep their children at home. Many of our parents in our country uh, both have jobs, full-time jobs. It's really taxing on the family itself. So we have to be considerate of that. We have to just give a bit of leeway of understanding to all parents and whatever decision they decide to go forward on. And, and part of that discussion also has to be, okay, if you are staying home, if you're going to keep your children at home, then what's the strategy? And that's a discussion I guess you have to have with the Board of Education in your particular jurisdiction as to what programs and what supports they can offer in situations like that. And we've heard from the people that did try online learning uh, back in the springtime before the uh, this end of the school season, uh, that met with uh, mixed success. I mean, some people just were not very comfortable with it. Some people didn't do it well. So it may not be an alternative, but that has to be part of the, the, the discussion before you make your final decision, I would think. Well, I would say this needs to be the biggest investment we do in our educational system right now. If policymakers are listening to this interview now, I urge all of them to find the money, to find talented people. Let's Let's make sure that we ramp up our online technology advancement and learning. We cannot afford not having the best way to support our parents at home to deliver educational materials. Because I agree with you, the reports that came out from, you know, when, when the outbreak was happening and we put children at home and we we're trying to teach them online, were not all positive. It was very difficult for teachers to deliver learning content. A, they weren't trained in it. B, they didn't have the resources. So we can't blame the teachers for that. But also the parents felt that the burden was put on them to figure out how to teach those children. They're also not equipped to do that. So my point here is that we really, you know, as we're reopening schools, we can't lose sight that now it's COVID-19. In the future, it could be another pandemic. It could be a natural disaster. Crises are on the increase. I've said it on your show before. They're only going to be happening in higher frequency and, and shorter time span between one to the other. So we really need to now invest in an overhaul in our educational system. And, and we don't know when that's coming. I mean, you know, there's, there's no expectation that there's a virus around the corner, but we weren't anticipating this one either, were we? Uh, and coronaviruses have been with us for quite some time now. Exactly. And, 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 you know, now it's coronavirus. But, you know, we also know climate change is, is, is the, the, the dramatic, dramatic effects of climate change are real. We could have a hurricane tomorrow. We could have, you know, God forbidding. I'm not trying to say here that this is for sure. But I, like you said, coronavirus, nobody really knew it was going to happen. And it happened. And we weren't prepared for it. Let's get ahead of this. I have faith in our country that we, we are very good at adapting and building systems in place to make us get ahead of this. So I think now is the time for us to really look at our educational system, not just elementary, I think all the way up to university level, and really think creatively of what can we do to, to change the system. I mean, online learning is the way forward, and also a little bit more of a hybrid model where we have online and face-to-face. -face. I think that's the ideal way forward. 
We were just having a discussion. I'm, I'm mourning the fact that they're not going to play football in Canada this year. We're a big Tiger Cat fan here in Hamilton. Uh, but we were talking about you know, how sudden things can happen. I mean, we were in Calgary last year for the Grey Cup, uh, and there was no talk about viruses, no talk about pandemics or epidemics or anything else. And, uh, and that was the end of November. And, and what was about five weeks later, all of a sudden we're faced with this, and how do we handle this? You don't know what's coming around the corner from a medical standpoint, do you? No, you don't. I mean, we can anticipate certain things, but for the most part, I mean, coronavirus, I mean, I'll be very, it'd be very hard to hear anybody argue that we knew this was going to happen. I mean, there were no reports to indicate about them. We heard first thing in December 31st about one case in Wuhan, China. A World Health Organization got on board and tried to look into it. So, yes, it, it, we, we had mechanisms in place that allowed us to quickly jump on and be like, okay, this is really serious and we need to figure out. But I also remember I was in, in February in San Francisco uh, at Stanford University, which is one of the best universities in the world. Mm-hmm. And they themselves were on the alert for coronavirus, but didn't really understand what's going on. And, and people just didn't bother with anything that, you know, related to corona. Fast forward three days later, I get to Canada, we're in lockdown. So my point here is that it can progress really, really fast. And if we don't have mechanisms in place that can support across all sectors, we're in trouble. Absolutely. Doctor, always great to get your perspective. Thanks so much for the time today. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Take care. Dr. Ahmad Khalid, of course, medical doctor and health policy expert. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talked about the Canadian political scene in the first hour of the program, the conservative leadership race, which will wind up on Sunday. South of the border, the Democrats finished their virtual convention uh, yesterday with the acceptance speech from uh, their candidate, of course, for President Joe Biden, who set a clear path for what he thinks he can do if he gets into the White House. Give people light and they will find the way. Those are words for our time. The current president has cloaked American darkness for much too long. Too much anger, too much fear, too much division. Here and now, I give you my word. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. And I'll be proud to carry the banner of our party into the general election. So it's with great honor and humility. I accept this nomination for President of the United States of America. Joe Biden last night. Uh, let's bring uh, Henry Jasek into the conversation, political science professor at McMaster University. Morning, Henry. How are you doing today? Just great, Bill. There's a lot of trepidation about this convention, obviously because of COVID-19. It had to go virtual. A lot could have gone wrong, technically and otherwise. What was your read on what you saw over the last four nights? There were just a couple minor glitches, uh, you know, hesitations between uh, uh, maybe a couple of the uh, pre-taped uh, segments. But other than that, this was a very interesting convention. And I thought the best way, I think, really to understand it is, say, is to remember what a, what a uh, live convention looks like. And I think most people would not remember that or, or think about that, but the live conventions had a lot of dead time. And so he had reporters scurrying around trying to find somebody to say something interesting and, and trying to bridge you know, these long periods at, at a convention, um, at, a, at a national convention, where there was really not much going on. And, and in that traditional convention, of course, there were so many people in the party who wanted their five minutes of fame, who wanted to be up on the podium giving a speech, uh, all sorts of minor officials, and really most people, of the de- most delegates, and certainly the home audience, 
was not really interested in what a, what these people had to say. It was just too many speeches by too many minor peoples and a lot of dead time. We didn't have that. We had a lot more excitement going on in these, uh, you know, in these four nights. Uh, you had a lot of ordinary people who had interesting, compelling stories, and there were so many interesting stories. I think it just kept it going along, and not to mention, you know, the entertainment that we had too. I mean, there was a number, you know, a number of different uh, entertainers on there who were quite, in, you know, quite interesting in performing their craft, and uh, I, th- I think it it worked very, very well. My only criticism would be, and this is speaking for somebody, of course, we're all in the Eastern Time Zone. Uh, I think it would be much. It would have been better if it uh, had had gone, you know, started a little earlier. Because I just think, you know, having your major speeches uh, hitting uh, 11 o'clock at night meant that there's some people basically who had to go to work in the morning, and they, <laughs> yeah. they were going to miss them. And so I think that was that was the one mistake. As somebody who gets up at four in the morning to start the, my, my broadcast <laughs> yeah. day, I, I'm 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 with you on that one, Henry. But yeah, you know, it's interesting though, as we were watching it through the course of the week. Uh, and you're right. I mean, in bygone, uh, you know, uh, things like this. I mean, basically, they they'd start their primetime coverage usually around seven o'clock and go to God knows when. Yeah. Uh, and you're right. They were scrambling around trying to find uh, some delegate from you know West Texas or something that was going to give some insight. What we saw this week was really four two-hour primetime specials, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was yeah. all packaged up, and you know, from nine to eleven o'clock, and this is where it's going to go. Exactly, and uh, a lot of celebrities who were you know gave. Uh, you know, basically did their jobs very well uh, under trying circumstances. Julia uh, Louis Dreyfus last night uh, had some nice uh, jokes. It's very hard when you don't have a laugh track, though. Yeah. So, so I think some people, some of the jokes went over their head, uh, a lot of people's heads, I assume, because, you know, they, they were referring to political events that maybe a lot of people don't have top of mind. Yeah, and it's tough without a laugh track. But certainly I think she did a great job, though, and it's for, certainly when she talked about her, her bout of cancer and uh, how Joe Biden had called her, been the first to call her to, you know, to talk to her about it. And, uh, you know, it, it, so many of the things we had last night just show that this is a guy who, who, who really is more interested in other people than himself, that essentially what, what tra- his life tragedies, his personal life tragedies with the death of his first wife and for a daughter and, his, uh, of course, his, uh, the death of his son through cancer, how it's made him more sensitive to other people's problems and not himself. It's it's just taken him out of himself so that he focuses on other people. And it's such a, a, a stark contrast to the person who's in the White House right now. Well, and that's one of the things I think a lot of people came away with. Uh, you couldn't have a, a more stark contrast between the guy that's there and, and Joe Biden as you looked at some of this. I thought one of the more touching moments last night, for instance, uh, was the young, what was he, 13-year-old that had yes. the, the, the speech impediment, the stutter? Exactly, yeah. I, I, I thought I knew all, everything there was to know about Joe Biden. I didn't know he had a stutter when he was a kid, and he had to overcome that. And, and the, the, the empathy that he showed to that young guy, uh, just like the the night before when we heard the, the the lady that runs the elevator up in New York there, mm-hmm. uh, and, no, my new best friend, and she was a Republican. She says, I, he's just a great guy. He cares about people. 
That's right. And and there were so many personal stories that really grabbed you. And of course, I mean, I think, I mean, I thought the ones you mentioned uh, were very important and certainly were, were really gripping. But I, the one that really grabbed me and was a little bit earlier is about the 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 daughter, the adult daughter who who loved her father, and you know, essentially he he listened to Trump. He could go out, you know, he's a careful, hardworking, dedicated man to his family. He thought he, he you know he trusted Trump that he could. Trump said, "Oh yeah, you can go out," you know, and he went to a, a party at a bar. He got sick with the virus and he and he died relatively quickly. And she said his only pre-existing condition was the, was uh, listening to Donald Trump. And I thought that, that was really powerful, really powerful, ab- the way she delivered it. Absolutely. Henry, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Well, I'm sure we'll do this again next week after the Republican convention finishes up. Okay, very good. Okay. Nice talking that, to you, though. Thanks so much. Henry Jasek, of course, political science professor. And and I understand this. Uh, some of the stuff is sort of inside baseball stuff. You know, we get that. Uh, you know, But uh, it's it's so important to get a message across like this. I mean, this uh, you know, it sounds like a cliche that this is the most important election in recent U.S. history. But it is, simply because of the, the changing circumstance, the things that have gone on with COVID-19. And, of course, the way the economy is tanked uh, in, in, in worldwide, but especially, of course, in the United States, they're concerned about that. New revelations about uh, the Russian involvement in the last election uh, with that uh, security report that came out from the Senate committee uh, earlier this week. So there's so many different aspects, so many sidebar issues here uh, to what's going on. Uh, But make no mistake about it, uh, when when Biden spoke last night, uh, he certainly said, look, the target right now is to win this thing, of course, I'm paraphrasing it, but... uh, well, he had some words about, which I thought fell in very nicely with what Kamala Harris said the night before, about you know, public enemy number one as far as they're concerned is the guy in the White House. Our current president has failed in his most basic duty to the nation. He's failed to protect us. He's failed to protect America. And my fellow Americans, that is unforgivable. Joe Biden last night uh, accepting his uh, party's nomination for the uh, presidency. I want to bring Laura Babcock from Power Group into the conversation. Uh, Laura, first of all, thanks so much for the time. I'm sure you stayed up late with the rest of us watching last night. (laughs) Every night of the convention. How could we not? And I don't think I've cried so much in my life. Whoever produced that should get an Oscar. They managed to take uh, an unprecedented virtual convention forum and turn it into something not just spectacular in terms of it was a spec, you know, there were beautiful, spectacular elements about it, but the emotion that they imbued and the, it was almost cathartic, Bill, I think for a lot of people who have very much felt as though the last four years have been dark. You know, the President Trump's inaugural speech was really dark and we, the convention was dark that the GOP put on in terms of their narrative and their tone. And so I think for so many people around the world watching speaker after speaker, video after video of, of real people and real emotion and real fear and real hope, that was very, very moving. So I thought that uh, we had to stay up every single night, of course. And last night, Joe Biden did not disappoint as the final speech. I'm always interested to get your analysis on, on speaking technique and, and, of course, the message that gets there. And as I'm looking at some of the uh, the reviews, I guess, if we should call it that, Laura, from uh, the speech last night, uh, generally high praise from just about everybody. And surprisingly, uh, the one that really caught my eye was Fox News, who gave it a thumbs up and said that's probably the best speech that Biden's ever given, uh, among many that he's given. Chris Wallace, uh, I'm paraphrasing, said basically Donald Trump can't run as this caricature he's tried to make Joe Biden. if He's got a real contender on his hands now. Well, it's ridiculous. I mean, Trump was trying to counter-program, and he did this rambling, weird speech 
going everywhere from shark, how he fears sharks and hates mosquitoes, to what they're doing in Israel. I mean, he was all over the map, but what they've been doing is trying to lay up for a year now that Joe is sleepy, that he's in his basement, that he lacks that kind of charisma to really own the moment. But last night, uh, you know, so, so they kind of said, this is what you can expect from Joe. He's going to do poorly. And the best thing going into a speech or any kind of performance bill, as you know, is to be underestimated. Sure. <laughs> and so people underestimated Joe. And then we sat by the fire table because, you know, that fireside chat vibe, we felt this was a historic and an important speech to listen to. And when you listen to it, not only was Joe not sleepy, but he had gravitas, which is this key element. And, you know, when people say something's presidential or not, what does that really mean? It means, in my mind, a combination of gravitas, which is dignity, which is a kind of a character strength with optimism, but also with a, a sense of, you know, there is challenges ahead. We need to fight them and we will fight them together. And so you couldn't help but feel that as you were listening to Joe Biden, that he was meeting the moment, that this was the speech of his life, that everything that we'd heard up until his speech about what a nice guy he was was great, you know, sounds like a wonderful person, but could he really sound presidential? Could he bring it to Trump, but bring it with dignity? Could he raise people's eyes above the current darkness into, as he said, if you show people the light, they'll get to it. Uh, it felt as though it was a speech for the moment, a speech for his lifetime, and I'm not surprised that Fox and everybody said it was a great speech because there's really very little that you could criticize. It, it had the right tone, right pacing, right delivery, uh, you know, the, the right message, the combination, as I discussed, between the optimism and the reality and the challenge. It was a very, very good speech. The contrast and the imagery that he used, I thought, was very effective. The darkness into light, etc. That, that creates a picture in, in the listener's mind, doesn't it? It really, really does. And, you know, we were listening to the speech, so we didn't see the impact of him coming out of the darkness into the light. But obviously, they staged it beautifully. And I think we also have to look at it in the context of who were the who are the big speakers and what did they all choose to do? And so what we saw was Obama, rather than being the high rhetorical Obama that's, you know, kind of really gets people's energy up, we saw a somber Obama talking from the place where the Constitution was written in a museum saying we are in for the fight of our democracy, 76 days, people. You know, it was very, very stark and, and, and surprising from Obama. So he wasn't, he wasn't putting up this big sort of huge energy. And so when Biden came on, you know, he'd had Obama's energy kind of restrained, a restrained passion. Kamala didn't do a barn burner. She decided to do more of a, this is who I am. You can trust me. I get you. She introduced herself beautifully. And so that really was giving Biden the opportunity to be the strong, charismatic leader speech that the convention needed. And, and so I thought that as a strategy, all the big players, all the big speakers teed up Biden perfectly. The takeaway here is, is going to be important, how the public is going to perceive this. We, we know ratings are down for all conventions now. People, I think, are just getting a little tired of this. But it was important for the Biden-Harris ticket to, to leave the American people with a message that they could, they could grasp onto. Were they successful in that? Yeah, I mean, the message that they grasped, they, they put some policies out there, of course. They had some key themes around gun violence, around global warming, uh, climate change. They had, you know, some good key themes running through the, the whole convention. But I think what we were really needing to see was 
do the Democrats have their collective, you know, what together? Are they ready for this fight? Are they something that you can actually have some hope in? And so I think when people look at this, they'll look at not only the fact that they handled the media extremely well, you know, those packaged little videos kept everybody engaged. And how many times did we all cry? I mean, there's some beautiful, really heart-wrenching moments. So it'll be memorable for people. But moreover, they showed a level of competency uh, between Michelle Obama's speech, Obama's, Kamala's, Nancy Pelosi. I mean, they showed that this is kind of your this is kind of your Avengers team, if you will. And even uh, Stephen Colbert has a joke about the Democrats being the Avengers. And they make in the cartoon they make Joe Biden Captain America. This sense of a really good guy who <laughs> you know really is needed, even if he's kind of old fashioned and old school. He's the one that we have to take the lead from. So I think overall they did a really good job. And they're probably going to get people who were kind of holding their nose to vote for Biden to say, no, actually, you know what? This guy can do it. This is his moment. And for people who are Republicans looking for a temporary home, I think they can feel comfortable that Joe Biden is not the radical left. He is just going to try to get the country out of this dark morass that it's been in for the last four years. There was an element of team here. I mean, obviously, it's Biden and Harris. But as you say, the supporting cast, I think, played a key role in this. Uh, the expectation for next week is, is going to be somewhat different. I know one spokesperson from the White House said that uh, uh, during their four-day convention starting next week, of course, they will feature Donald Trump prominently every night, uh, which doesn't surprise me. I mean, typically, it's going to be all about Trump, not about the Republican Party. Absolutely. And I think a lot of Republicans would prefer it that way in the sense that they don't want to really be associated with this. I mean, down ballot. And we, we always think the presidential election is just about the president. But really, the, the Senate has to swing to the Democrats if they're ever going to be able to affect any of the change Biden and Kamala are talking about. There's limits to presidential power if you're following presidential convention and have good ethics, right? And so we know that they have to down ballot, flip the House and flip the Senate, or at least flip the Senate. And so I think a lot of Republican senators don't want to be associated with the Trump brand. They are in trouble in their local races. And if Trump goes out there and he's bellicose and he's all over the map and he's doing his usual braggadocious nonsense, you know, it might make his base have some laughs at the expense of Democrats. But is it going to do a single thing to, you know, politics is a, is a game of addition. Is it going to get any more people? He cannot win on his base unless he cheats. And so he needs more people to vote for him. A convention full of that kind of negativity and, and, and low rhetoric and all the rest of it, I don't think is going to help them in any way. And frankly, I think a lot of us, we've got to brace ourselves. You know, there could be, as David Cliff said, uh, Obama's former guy, he said it could be white power hour for, you know, four nights in a row. And that's kind of terrifying for the world. So I think we have to go into next week, listen, pay attention, try to pick up what Trump's intentions and narratives are, but it'll be a very different experience. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Always great to get your perspective, Laura. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.